The High Tech Act of 2009, which spurred rapid adoption of electronic health records, also envisioned private and secure health information exchange, but numerous obstacles prevented the realization of that vision. In October 2022, the federal government adopted regulation requiring providers and other entities to share electronically accessible health information. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Blumenthal, President of the Commonwealth Fund and a member of the journal's editorial board. Dr. Blumenthal has written a perspective article about the new information exchange rule. Dr. Blumenthal, you write in your perspective article that despite the adoption of electronic health records, there have been both technical and economic barriers to health information exchange. So to start, what were the technical obstacles? The technical obstacles involved the difficulty of connecting many different electronic health records that were adopted by providers of care over the years after the passage of the act. There were dozens of electronic records. Each of them had different software and connecting them in a seamless way turned out to be a challenge. And that was one of the obstacles. The other is that to exchange information and have the information be meaningful when it is received by another provider of service, the terms used in different records have to be identical. They have to be defined the same way. An abnormal hemoglobin A1C or a chest x-ray finding or a abnormal venogram. The terms that define those findings have to be similar and therefore have the same meaning for different providers. That sounds simple, but in fact, once you pull up the hood on that, it gets you into conversations about diseases and how they're defined and what normal and abnormal is and how laboratory results are measured, what the nature of the defining numerator and denominator are. All those things require consensus. And believe it or not, the medical profession and the marriage specialties don't always agree on those things. So getting compromise is not trivial and requires a pushing, some force that pushes disagreeing clinicians and specialists and experts to consensus. So those are the two types of technical obstacles. And then if those weren't enough, what about the economic obstacles? What incentives have made providers reluctant to consistently share patient information? Well, Steve, this derives from the fundamental nature of the way we organize healthcare services in the United States. And as someone who was responsible for implementing high tech, I didn't grasp this initially. I perhaps should have in retrospect, but I didn't. We believe, rightly or wrongly, that healthcare should be like other economic sectors. And the way we control costs and meet consumer demand for performance, which goes also by the name of quality, is through competition and consumer choice. And that's the way we run the automobile market or the semiconductor market or the air conditioner market or the fast food market. And when you apply that principle to healthcare, it means that when you have, like we do in Boston, as you well know, Steve, many hospitals occupying the same geographic community and therefore the same healthcare market, we are asking those institutions to compete with one another. Well, we don't ask BMW and Toyota to exchange information because that's not the way markets work. Competitors don't make it easy for their competitors to improve their business. The logical question is, why should two hospitals located down the street from one another share information when it might help their competitor? And that turned out to be a very profound obstacle 
such that even if we had quickly and easily solved the technical problems, I suspect that exchange would have been hampered, deeply hampered by the fundamental nature of markets as a way of organizing and allocating resources. And in response to all that, what provisions in the 21st Century Cures Act addressed those barriers? It took a little while for the Congress to realize that just passing a law saying it would be nice to exchange information would not be sufficient. And in the 21st Century Cures Act, the Congress came to terms with that. And they essentially, without saying it, admitted that markets needed to be regulated, healthcare of exchange were going to occur. And the way they did it was a classic type of government intervention. They said, exchange information or else. The or else was economic penalties in the case of electronic health records vendors, or in the case of hospitals and other providers of services. Not all those penalties have been developed and laid out yet for reasons that have to do with governmental process, but some were specified in law. So essentially, they said, though, you may have an economic disincentive to exchange information because it's not good for your business. We're going to make sure that failing to exchange information isn't good for your business either. The government is going to make it painful for you. And we hope painful enough so that it will overcome the disincentives built into the marketplace. That's the fundamental nature of the regulation and of the incentive structure that's been put in place. Whether it will be a powerful enough set of incentives remains to be seen. And whether they will be thoroughly and aggressively enforced also remains to be seen. What exactly does this new rule require and what should providers know about its effects on medical practice? Well, it requires that they change their software, if they haven't already, and many have already, to put in place some software that facilitates exchange. It's very common software. It's called an application programming interface. It's very common in the world of Apple and Google and all the iPhones that people carry around and the iPads and all the portable machines that they carry have these application programming interfaces installed so that the many apps that people download and use can work on the substrate from Apple or Google that underlies the working of those machines, those devices. And what the federal government said through the legislation is vendors of electronic health records and providers install comparable application programming interfaces and install them in ways that are consistent and standardized across all your records. And if you do that, it will be possible for your records to talk to other records the way it's possible for your software that tracks flights to talk to the substrate of the Apple or Google software. So without getting too technical about it, it's quite doable. It could have been probably done earlier, but it did require the development of a special set of APIs and a, the development of consensus around those APIs, those application programming interfaces. They exist. They are being installed. They have to be installed by regulation now. Failing to do that would mean that the organizations that have electronic health records would not be able to engage in exchange the way the law requires, and they would be subject to penalties. So the technology to do this is not unique, but it had to be enforced upon the healthcare industry. So you say nonetheless in your article that exceptions in the rule and regulatory delays raise concern about whether the rule can overcome the disincentives to information exchange that you have described. So what challenges do you see in enforcing the rule and ensuring that it has the desired effects? Well, let me start by saying that there are many, many providers of care who are 
anxious to participate in information exchange, if it's relatively easy to do, and who are devoted to their patients and committed to improving care and want to make exchange happen because it's good patient care and good quality, and it also reduces costs. But you can't count, unfortunately, in an economic market that's based on competition, you can't count on professional goodwill to achieve all the goals you want. And so if you give some providers who are anxious to preserve their competitive advantage a way out of complying with the regulation, you make it easier for them to justify not complying and to find a rationale that is consistent with law or regulation. And there are quite a number of exceptions built into the regulation. Now, exceptions like if the provider determines that it's not in the patient's interest to exchange information, or it may harm them to exchange information, or if there is a threat that their privacy or the security of their information might be compromised, or if it's just not technically possible. These are all written into the regulation. If you don't want to exchange information and you're a provider and the Department of Health and Human Services comes along and says, you're blocking information exchange, stop it. And you say, I'm not blocking information exchange. I'm using one of the exceptions. I think it's not right for this patient. Well, then you've set the basis right there for a court case and lengthy legal discussions of when it is or isn't in the interest of a particular patient to exchange information. And I can just imagine, I'm not a lawyer, but I can imagine years and years of legal contests over when and where these exceptions apply. So I think that is one of the big issues that enforcing this regulation against what's called information blocking will encounter. There is also a real concern that the regulation could not address because it doesn't have the authority to address it. And that has to do with gaps in our privacy and security legal framework in the internet age. So HIPAA, the much abused protections that all physicians and healthcare institutions have to live with and gets blamed for many administrative burdens and complications in communication. HIPAA was passed in 1996, long before the internet was a thing, didn't anticipate it. It only regulates certain types of entities that were common at the time. These are entities like hospitals and physicians and nursing homes and insurance companies that at the time possessed patient information, and it only regulates their behavior. It only regulates the behavior of those entities. Well, as you well know, there are a lot of new entities in the healthcare picture, household names like Apple and Google and a range of other companies that now have healthcare information and also new entities called health information exchanges, which were created by the Congress under the High Tech Act, though some existed before, specifically to facilitate information exchange. None of these new entities are regulated under HIPAA. They just simply fly below the law. And it is reasonable to be concerned about whether they face any serious penalty for failing to protect the privacy and security of patient information. Do you see Congress addressing this problem in, in the near future? Regrettably, I don't. When I was national coordinator, I brought this problem up repeatedly. And frankly, it is such an incredible tangle of fraught issues that it is very hard to address and very contentious. And there is, I think, an impression that HIPAA is adequate, in some cases more than adequate. That is, it is an obstacle to the free flow of information in healthcare. That's not true. 
but it is actually not adequate to protect privacy and security of health information. It gets a bad rap, but the whole issue is almost radioactive because of the many stakeholders that get involved when you start regulating the exchange of information. So despite all of this, do you see the new information exchange rule as a fundamental advance? Yeah, I do. Information is the lifeblood of medicine. It is so important that we are able to share responsibly and carefully and securely the critical healthcare information that we have obtained about our patients and to be able to do that promptly and, of course, with patient consent. So getting this right is critical. And I do think this regulation moves us closer. It makes it more likely that organizations that want to make this happen in a safe and secure way will be able to do it. It certainly puts providers on notice that the federal government has an interest in making this happen and that failure to exchange information will be viewed as counter to the public interest and potentially penalized. It also does something else, which I think is quite remarkable and little noticed. It says that under HIPAA, patients who already had the right to their health information in paper form as a provision of HIPAA now have the right to that information in machine-readable form, and they can request it. They can also identify a third party to request it on their behalf. So they can pick a, let's say, a healthcare startup, an IT healthcare startup that they trust or that their physician trusts to be their agent in collecting their health information and organizing it and sharing it with them and with the other physicians and hospitals and facilities that they think should have access to it. Now, I don't know about you, Steve, but I certainly don't know how to go about extracting electronic health record data from the hospitals and physicians that I use and organizing it and downloading it and re-presenting it to whoever I need to see it or want to see it. But these organizations that I would choose would have that expertise. And if you carry that forward to its logical outcome, the best among them will start to be managers of that information and provide value for that information by organizing it and making it understandable, but not only to other physicians and caretakers, but to patients. So I can imagine a future now that we've got the technical problems related to information exchange managed, and we have a beginning framework for patients who want their information to be able to get it. And we have empowered patients to find agents who can help them do this. I can imagine that patients will have much, much more information about their own health in the future. And that is a good thing. It also may provide a way for patients to choose among their providers based on whether those providers are cooperative in sharing information. They may decide in the future, and this is where competition would work, they may decide in the future that if they go to a hospital that consistently refuses to share their information with them directly or through a third party, that they want to use a different organization. They may ask their referring physician to send them somewhere else. They may pick a different physician. All this supposes that that information has utility for the patients and for their caretakers, which is not a certainty. It has certainly has utility, but whether it can be shared in ways that patients understand enough to use remains to be tested. So I see this as a crack in the wall that has prevented consumers from being informed about how to make choices in healthcare. If you add to that electronic health record data, all the economic data that is now available in 
electronic form in most healthcare organizations, the claims data, the billing data, you begin to see how you could put together cost-based and clinically informed choices for patients. Bring in insurance data with deductibles and copays, and you can imagine a vibrant cost and quality informed patient-led healthcare market. This is a very optimistic scenario, but there's no way to test its value without the kind of work that just was done through the regulation issued by the Office of the National Coordinator. And I am hopeful that once it becomes easy to exchange information, technically easy, that physicians will start to insist that their hospitals or their nursing homes or their practices actively participate as responsible professional providers in making information exchange possible. And that the economic disincentives built into our market economy become less powerful over time. Thank you, Dr. Blumenthal.